What an extraordinary week it has been. They say that a week is a long time in politics, and if your name is George Papandreou, this must be one of the longest ever. It seems that European governments are being spun around by market forces that they cannot control, like sticks spinning in a whirlpool. And no one knows where we will end up once the torrent subsides. As our strange times unfold, wrote Matthew Paris in yesterday's Times, we look away from what stares us in the face. The Imperium of the West is over, never to return. Our predominance is gone. Our inheritance is diminished. We are being humbled and will not be raised up again. We have overstretched our own resources. We have been outspending our own budgets. Our output has been falling behind while our shopping habits have been racing ahead. We are broke and have not means of getting rich again. It's not the end of the world or even of our world. We're not going to die, we're not going to starve, but the direction is gently down for the rest of our lives. So we ask ourselves, where is God in all this? And what are the implications for world mission? Because for the last 200 years, the amazing, vigorous Protestant missionary enterprise that carried the gospel to every corner of the world has largely been fueled by Western missionaries backed by Western money. Praise the Lord for them. Amy is one of them, and Amy, we uh, thank God so much for you and delighted to be sharing with you today, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, all that the Lord is going to do in you and through you. But let's remember too, in these times of turmoil, where we wonder where Western civilization is heading, that the mission model that proved so successful in the last 200 years is only one in God's toolkit, not the only one. Times are changing, but God is not caught by surprise. He is raising up new non-Western mission movements, and let's keep our eye on what's going to come out of China in the next few decades in that respect. But also, uh, the peoples of the world are on the move with migration happening at a higher rate than ever before in history. And God has his hand on that as well. He's working among migrant peoples and through migrant peoples. He's on the move, mission is on the move, and that's our theme for this morning. Now, the history of world mission owes far more than we realise to the shifting flow of populations on the move. Migrants, refugees and asylum seekers feature large in the story of God's glory as we turn the pages of history, his story. Let's start then with a quick quiz uh, from the Old Testament. I've got uh, ten questions for you. A couple of these came from Amy, uh, not Amy, Emily. Thank you, Emily, for those. Uh, So, Let's be alert. Ten questions. Number one, what is the first example of forced migration in the Bible? Adam and Eve, absolutely. Uh, This migration that set up the need for world mission in the first place uh, and led on to God's rescue plan to seek and restore human beings to himself. Second, what natural disaster prompted the largest movement of refugees the world had ever seen, nearly all of whom perished? Yep, they were in the flood bringing destruction and despair on a massive scale, but leading on to the next stage of God's mission plan unfolding through the remnant who survived. And when we pray for refugees, as we must, do we ask God not only to alleviate their suffering, but also to work out his plan through it all, 
through the Met? The beginnings of the modern Afghan church came about because in the 1980s and 90s, millions of Afghan refugees moved to Pakistan, and there some of them heard the gospel and responded. Number three. After the flood, what event greatly increased communication problems and caused populations to migrate around the world? Quick, quick. Babel, yes. Language learning is the bane of all missionaries. On the day of Pentecost, the curse of Babel began to be reversed as many ethnic groups heard with amazement the gospel in their mother tongue for the first time. And we look forward to that day when it will be fully reversed, not by all reverting to one language, but when believers from every language group will stand before the throne praising their Saviour. And may there be thousands and indeed millions of Kurdish people among them. Number four. God, setting in motion the next stage of his mission plan, called an Iraqi man out of his comfort zone to wander around as a nomad for the rest of his long life. Who was he? Abraham. Or Abraham. Uh, his life is one long story of being on the move from Ur to Haran, and then on to Canaan, moving from place to place and never having the chance to settle down, back down to Egypt, back again, waiting and hoping and looking to God. Mission on the move, with all of its confusing twists and turns. But God refining him all the while, in a way that he never could have been refined if he hadn't had to be on the move. And in my experience, one of the greatest uh, privileges of being a missionary is being pushed out of your comfort zone and seeing how God answers prayer when you have nowhere else to turn. And Rachel and I have got many stories uh, in our own lives of that. Uh, the times that we've learnt the most have also been the hardest times. And Amy, we don't wish hard times on you, uh, but nor do we wish them away from you, because they are the times where you're going to learn the most, where your faith will be stretched, and where afterwards we'll be looking back and say, yes, God, thank you, you were in it. Number five, who became a missionary as a result of human trafficking? Joseph, yes. Now, if anyone was pushed out of his comfort zone, it was him. And uh, he, like Abraham, learnt lessons of faith he never could have learnt any other way and played a vital role in the next step of God's unfolding mission plan. Now, he was able to look back many years uh, later on all the injustice he had suffered, unpleasant though it was at the time, and could say to his brothers, you intended it for evil, but God meant it for good. And wouldn't it be wonderful if every man, woman and child today subjected to human trafficking were able to say that? It's estimated that there are some 27 million slaves in the world today. Bonded labourers, child soldiers, sex slaves. In one of the biggest scandals of our day. O oh God of Joseph, what will you do for them? Number six, which migrants were driven from their homeland by famine, came knocking on the door of the world's superpower, grew in numbers as a resented underclass, later became bonded labourers and finally emigrated in a hurry? Yes, the Israelites, it's obvious, but it comes to as a salutary reminder to us, living in a mission paradigm for the last 200 years where mission was from the rich to the poor, from the technologically advanced to the underdeveloped, and from the rulers to the ruled, at least in the lands of colonialism, that it doesn't have to be that way. You know, there are many other paradigms. And as the centre of world Christianity moves today from the north to the south, indeed has already done so within the last two or three decades, it has also moved from the historically rich to the historically poor. 
Now, tomorrow's mission will be much more from the poor to the rich and not the other way around. But that's how it was for the Israelites. God is not phased by that. Let's realign our thinking. Number seven. Name any two immigrants who assimilated into Israel and became ancestors of Jesus. Ruth and another? Rahab. Good. As the people of uh, Israel migrated across the Near East and and arriving in the land of Canaan, they came into contact with other peoples, uh, some of whom came to uh, believe and trust in the God of Israel. What first brought uh, Ruth into God's mission plan was Naomi being an economic migrant, forced out of her homeland, not comfortable, and then having the tragedy of that uh, triple bereavement, and then having to migrate again. It's mission on the move. It's disruptive, but God works through it. Number eight, name one Jewish girl who was a migrant worker in a far-off land but witnessed faithfully to her boss. Yeah? Yes, who doesn't actually have a name in the Bible, so that was an unfair question, but indeed she was the uh, servant girl of uh, Naaman in Syria. Um, And uh, her witness uh, was the thing that brought him uh, to receive both uh, healing and uh, the message Uh, of the God of Israel that he never would have had in any other way. Now, she, if you like, is just one more statistic. I don't know, captured in war, perhaps, and now a child labourer in a far-off land, but clinging on in faith to the God of her fathers and brave enough to witness to her boss. Did you know that some of the most effective missionaries in the Gulf countries today are not uh, Westerners, uh, but Filipino housemaids? Uh, and the reason they're effective is they live right inside the households of the Arab elite in a way that others can't get into. And some of them have had a powerful witness uh, in that they're exploited, they're abused, uh, but they are migrant missionaries overlooked in our statistics, but mighty in God's eyes. Number nine, name a reluctant missionary who tried to escape God's call. Jonah, yes, God called him east, he tried to head west, didn't work. Uh, I've got a book here called Reluctant Missionary by Edith Buxton. And she tells how on uh, the ship on her way to Africa, she was tossing and turning in her her bunk uh, one night, thinking it over. I said to myself in the dark, I'll die. I know I'll die. I shan't be able to make it. But she went anyway. And I think some of the greatest missionary heroes are not those who find it a great adventure. Uh, but the reluctant missionaries, like Jonah or Edith Buxton, or maybe some of us. And finally, uh, who was the Bible's most sorry? I'll start again. Who was the Bible's most famous asylum seeker turned missionary? Jesus. Thank you. I wonder what the Egyptian border officials said. <laughs> Not another Palestinian family come to scrounge off us. Let's not turn up our noses at those seeking refuge in our city. We don't know what they've come from, and we don't know what they will become. So that's a quick overview. Let's come now to our uh, passages, uh, two passages. Um, And you'll have seen from the headings that I gave to those passages that they fit in with this theme of mission on the move. Uh, We have first some prisoners of war. Uh, taken in the third year of the reign of Joachim, king of Judah. I'm talking now from uh, Daniel chapter 1. 
This was 605 BC and the start of a long series of attacks on Jerusalem that were to culminate in the loss of nearly everything that defined the people of God. Their temple, their land, their king. A massive psychological shock, as indeed every um, disruption by warfare always is. Uh, Oh Lord, why have you let this happen? Is the cry of the book of Lamentations. But this was at the start of that process and Nebuchadnezzar took uh, these prisoners and we read in verse 4 how uh, they included these young men um, that he was keen to train up in the imperial service, uh, qualified to serve in the king's palace, um, destined to learn the language and literature of the Babylonians. Now from one point of view this was a lucky break for them, uh, but from another viewpoint a sinister undermining of their identity. For as they learned Babylonian customs and religion and were soaked in these things day by day, their own faith and customs and worldview could gradually start to fade. Not being denied altogether, but just kind of becoming less real somehow. Until by their children's or their grandchildren's generation, they could be lost altogether. And so this was a deeply challenging situation. And even their names, which in the original Hebrew contained references to the God of Israel have now been changed, overlaid with new names, each of which contain references to the gods of Babylon. So, as with all immigrants, uh, the identity of these people was deeply threatened. Now, these four Jewish young men clung strongly to their faith, um, despite all the apparent evidence that the God of Israel had been defeated by the stronger God, Nebo, who claimed the submission of all the conquered nations. Such was the worldview at the time. If, if, if my God is stronger, he wins. If he's weaker, he loses. And so we have this uh, challenge in, in chapter 3, verse 4, to people of uh, every nation and every language to bow down and worship the gods of Babylon. Now, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego have put up with a lot in terms of acculturation. But they refused to take this step too far. They drew drew a a line in the ground, if you like. They said, no matter what happens, that's it. We're not taking a step further. We're not going to worship your gods. And Nebuchadnezzar in verse 15 says, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And they responded, verse 17, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But, and here's a powerful statement of faith, isn't it, in verse 18. Even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you set up. I wonder about how many nameless martyrs that have been already in the 21st century. Probably millions, certainly I would say hundreds of thousands, Uh, who've been willing to take that stand and have paid for it with their lives. We honour them. So we see the stand that they took and the rest of the book of Daniel uh, affirms with incredible faith uh, the sovereignty of the God of gods above all the gods of Babylon. And indeed looks forward to the day when the saints will inherit the kingdom. 
And as we look down the pages of history, what happened was that uh, through their exile to Babylon and scattering to many other places, the Jewish people over the next few generations were scattered far and wide as refugees and economic migrants. Now some returned later, uh, but very many stayed on in the countries of their adoption. Generation by generation, settling down, earning their living, learning the local languages, but never forgetting uh, the God of Israel. Now, it was not their choice to be scattered from their homeland, but it was part of God's mission plan, mission on the move. And thus it was that these Jews became known as a diaspora and form a really important part of how God prepared the people for the coming of the gospel in the first century AD. For these Jewish communities stretching uh, throughout the Middle East and into North Africa formed staging posts on the cross-cultural highway and lights in the darkness that would be the preparation for the gospel. And they became proficient in two cultures at the same time, just as so many children of immigrants do today, uh, with their hybrid identity. Such people actually are great uh, channels of communication between two cultures, Uh, because they can relate to both. And so it was that these diaspora Jews, before the coming of Christ, had already translated the Old Testament into the Greek language, the international language of the day. And uh, Gentile people started to be attracted by what they were seeing and what they were reading. Joseph Stalin, during his decades of tyrannical rule in the Soviet Union, liked to move whole populations around like pieces on a chessboard. And when I visited Kyrgyzstan, I found out a little bit more about this, about how Stalin had at one time moved whole populations of German Christians to Central Asia. And I wonder how they felt as they got uprooted from their homeland. Oh God, what are you up to? And then Stalin, uh, starting from the very opposite end of the Soviet Union, uprooted whole populations of Koreans from Vladivostok. They'd already migrated once from Korea to eastern Russia, now migrated again, brought and dumped in the countryside with nothing to eat. Many of them starved. The ones that survived stayed on in Kyrgyzstan, learnt uh, local languages, were able to fit in. And then in the 1990s, after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, the missionaries started to arrive in Kyrgyzstan. And they found that the German Christians had had this witness there all along. And because they were now a diaspora people, they could speak local languages and reach out to the local people. And the Korean communities, when Korean missionaries arrived on the scene, those that were third generation Korean diaspora there, uh, were amazed to hear about uh, Jesus Christ. And they were the first to whom the Korean missionaries went. And from there, they became a springboard to reach the rest. So we see, despite the suffering, despite the incomprehensible things that go on, as populations get shifted around. God is at work, as he was for the Diaspora Jews. So he is with Diaspora Christian populations today. Look at what uh, the Iranians are doing in Turkey. Uh, I was just this week with somebody, an Iranian believer, lives in Oxford, just back from a visit to Istanbul, and she's so excited with the way that Iranians who've been, had to leave Iran, are living in Istanbul. They've got a, a Christian fellowship there. They're inviting Muslims to come and join them. The gospel is growing and spreading. People are being baptized. Churches are being planted. Look at the... Um, Churches in, in London, more than half of the Christians in London in worship on any Sunday are non-white. And they include the largest uh, Christian populations in Britain. I was on the bus the other day to um, uh, London, and uh, this was about 6.30 in the morning, and the person sitting next to me opened her Bible and started reading it, and uh, it turned out that she is uh, from the Philippines. 
And she told me about a uh, Filipino congregation of a hundred and more people right there in Headington, in the next door street to St. Deb's in Headington, and I never knew about it. God is working through diaspora people. Let's come uh, to Acts chapter 11. The gospel spread through diaspora believers. Now, what's very interesting about the people in um, Acts 11, 19 and 20 it says that those who have been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen, which happened in which city? Jerusalem, okay? Now, persecution broke out. People were scattered. They had to leave their, their homes and their property. They suffered loss. They had to go who knows where. They were confused, disorientated. But, as they travelled, they spoke the gospel. As far as Phoenicia, that's on the Lebanon coast. Cyprus and Antioch, that's further up the coast in, in modern-day Syria. And now, some of them... Um, spoke only to Jews because they were Jewish believers from Jerusalem. That's all they knew, that's all they could do. But others, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, were the ones who first started sharing the gospel with Gentiles. Now, why them? Well, it's clear, because they were already diaspora believers. Their ancestors had been scattered to uh, Cyprus and Cyrene on the North African coast, uh, as a result, their families had grown up learning both uh, Greek and uh, Hebrew. At some point, uh, some of them had shifted back to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, they'd heard the gospel of Jesus. So now, third time round, they were migrating against their will. And it must have been such a temptation to say, well, let's just keep quiet about the name of Jesus this time. But they were bold. And God used them to plant the church in Antioch. And it was only afterwards that the uh, church leaders caught up with what God was already doing. And not the only time in mission history that that has happened. And so they sent Barnabas to check up on them. Barnabas was a good choice. He was too, was a diaspora believer from uh, Cyprus. Uh, he saw what was happening, encouraged it, went to find Paul, another diaspora believer. Um, and so it was that Paul and Barnabas were sent out on their missionary journeys, well suited for the task, being bicultural people. But nevertheless... It was not a straight line from Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, to the first missionary journeys of Acts 13. It went via persecution, suffering, scattering, and the ordinary witness of ordinary people. Mission on the move. Let's finish with bringing this back to us and uh, seeing how it applies to our lives. Four points of application. Firstly, let's get right behind Amy. That hymn that we've just sung is one that Rachel and I sang at our wedding more than 25 years ago, facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees. We who rejoice to know you, renew before your throne the solemn pledge we owe you to go and make you known. That is the solemn pledge Amy is making. Uh, And let's get behind her in that and in a few weeks time couple of months time there'll be her commissioning service where you have the chance to send her out in that way but secondly let's remember that God is doing amazing things uh, around the world among people on the move international students right here in our city people from some of the most unreached countries on earth Saudi Arabia Libya Iran places like that are here wanting to get to know and have conversation with English people We have economic migrants, we have refugees, we have diaspora communities right here in our city uh, having contact with us. Is this not part of God's plan? 
Or is it something we resent? Today, if you walk uh, out on the Kali Road, you'll see happy Muslims on the pavements. Why are they happy today? It's Eid, one of the two great festivals. Eid is famous partly for the pilgrimage to Mecca and partly for the sacrifice of animals. Thirdly and fourthly, more briefly, if God brings believers to our church from all nations, let's work hard at truly demonstrating what the rainbow people of God look like. Now, most of us are white people, not all, but increasingly in the decades ahead, we will find in Britain, I trust and pray, multicultural churches. People say it can't happen. I say it does happen, it can happen, it must happen, and in heaven it will happen, so let's get used to it. And that means not just having people from other cultures sitting politely in the pews, but actively taking part in ministry and leadership in our churches. And fourthly, coming back full circle to the Matthew Paris quote at the beginning, saying that the West is being brought to its knees. If the West is brought to its knees economically in the coming generation, is that the end of the world? Well, no, it's actually a redistribution of resources that we've had too much of. Is it the end of mission? Well, no, God has plenty of other ways of carrying on his mission task. If British Christians in the decades ahead end up so poor as to have to go as economic migrants to work in the factories of Beijing. Heaven forbid, economic migrants come to us, not the other way around. Or sweeping the streets of Riyadh. Is God faced by that? Let's look up to the God of the nations and what he's doing through mission on the move. And let's resolve to be part of that. Uh, And that is sometimes painful, but it's a great privilege.